Beyond the Paper Gown inspires, informs, and empowers women with the latest information about our health and healthcare choices. Join in for provocative conversations with scientists, clinicians, policymakers, and innovators. Beyond the Paper Gown is hosted by Dr. Mitzi Crockover, internal medicine specialist and women's health advocate. The following information is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. This information is not intended as a substitute for professional therapy or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello, I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover, and welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. You may have heard that if you are an American woman, there is a 1 in 8 chance you'll develop breast cancer. But that doesn't tell you what your individual risk of breast cancer is. Today, we're going to talk about a company that is trying to change that, taking into account a woman's personal history so she can have the information she needs to potentially reduce her specific risk of cancer or at least find cancer at an earlier stage. Now, most women who receive a diagnosis of breast cancer are over the age of 50. However, according to the CDC, about 11% of all breast cancers occur in women younger than 45. The challenge that these younger women face is that screening guidelines are less established than that for older women, and even those guidelines seem to change often. Delayed screening means catching cancer at a later stage when it's harder to treat. So understanding any factors that might put a woman at risk at a younger age can help someone know if they should start screening earlier than the recommended guidelines might suggest. We also know that factors such as race and ethnicity can play a significant role. Black women, for example, have a higher chance of developing breast cancer before the age of 40 than white women. And women with genetic mutations on the BRCA genes, BRCA stands for breast cancer gene, you may have also heard it called BRCA, are also at increased risk. This genetic mutation is most associated with women of Jewish heritage whose families originally hailed from Eastern Europe. Today's guest is Caitlin Christine, a former actor and writer who transitioned to patient advocacy and healthcare. She's worked with some of the leading nonprofits and genetic testing companies with a special focus on hereditary cancer. She then drew upon her own challenges with cancer to create Gabby. Gabby is a company that's on a mission to reduce delayed diagnosis by predicting a woman's individual breast cancer risk. Welcome, Caitlin. Thank you, Mitzi. Pleasure to be here. So let's just start out. Tell us a little bit about what Gabby is. At Gabby, we are the early detection company. We're starting with breast cancer, and our mission is to make sure that every stage four is found at stage two or earlier. So we've created the most accurate and inclusive risk model that can predict a woman's risk of breast cancer, provides her with her personalized care plan, and helps navigate her to an early detection. Okay. And how do you do that? What's your secret sauce to the extent that you can tell us? Absolutely. I think it's helpful to first talk about uh, the background of women learning their risks. And the reality is that right now there's really no standard of care to assess a woman's risk. And, and if there is, there are these risk models that are used only in clinical settings. And typically, if a woman is going to get run through these risk models, it's going to be by her OBGYN or primary care physician or a breast specialist. Well, of course, getting to a breast specialist requires you to either be at an academic institution or already know that you are at an increased risk. 
there's an access issue with getting to breast specialists. And if you're going to your OBGYN or PCP, because that's not their specialty, they're not assessing every woman's risk for breast cancer. So the whole idea started with, if there are these risk models out there that aren't being used, and the reality is that only 5% of clinicians are running their patients through these risk models. And can I just interrupt really quickly? When you talk about risk models, what you're really talking about is that there are a number of factors that we know increase an individual's risk. And so those models take into account an individual's personal risk profile. Absolutely. All those things, you know, age, height, weight, um, personal uh, history of disease, and then family history, obviously, is the most common one that people know. Um, yes. So all those factors can um, impact a woman's risk. And so these risk models are taking those into account using an algorithm to then predict what is the likelihood that you will get breast cancer. Well, that's great, only if it's being used. And so the reality is that only 5% of clinicians are running their patients through these risk models. And that's not necessarily the clinician's fault. It's that the the responsibility has somehow been put on the shoulders of OBGYNs and PCPs. And really, they have so many other things that they're, they're supposed to be doing. And so this kind of falls by the wayside. So women aren't learning what their risks are. And the problem with that is that once you know your risks, there are different things that you can do about it, whether that's starting your mammograms earlier than the general population, whether it's even that mammography is the right type of screening modality for you. It could be breast MRIs, it could be breast ultrasounds. So there's all sorts of different things that can be done, which is why it's so important to know your risk. So back to your question about how are we doing this? What's our secret sauce? Knowing these risk models aren't being used that really was where the initial idea came from was how do we get more women to know their risks? Well, let's put these risk models in the hands of women. So we created a risk model that's the first ever consumer facing, but it's also ingesting different types of data that has never been used before. What Christine means by ingesting different types of data is that Gabby uses a number of sources, including medical records and information from insurance claims, to identify information about a woman that may impact on her risk of breast cancer. Insurance claims are useful sources of data that provide information on what diagnoses have been given in the past, what tests have been performed, and even medicines that have been used. Integrating all those data points provides more information than just a health questionnaire alone. So that's um, in the back end. A woman gets access to Gabby. We connect her to her data and then predict her risk and tell her what her lifetime risk of breast cancer is, as well as her two-year risk. Now, based on those risks, we use medical guidelines to now construct a personalized care plan. Here's what you need to do, how often, when, in order to decrease your risks, and here's what you can do when, how often, in order to, if there's a sign or symptom, get you diagnosed as early as possible. How do you know your algorithm is accurate? Ooh, good question. We trained and tested our algorithm on the world's largest claims data set last year. We validated the model with that claims data of 14 million women to see if, in fact, we accurately were able to predict when someone did in fact get breast cancer. 
And we were able to with 81% accuracy, which although, you know, you would think it should be 100% with these algorithms and risk models, none of them are ever 100%. And the ones that are currently used in clinical practice at best have a 68% accuracy. So we were pretty proud that uh, we were able to prove that we can we can do it better. That's terrific. And part of the challenge in even diagnosing breast cancer, as evidenced by the competing guidelines, if you will, for the American Cancer Society and the U.S. Uh, Preventive Health Services Task Force, exactly. is we know that if we start mammography at 50, ACS says 40, mm-hmm. we can probably do a pretty good job of screening. Does your algorithm do a better job of predicting breast cancer risk for younger women, which is much harder to do? Um, I'm glad you brought that up because um, one of the the pitfalls of these risk models that are used today is that they're only appropriate for women who are over the age of 35 and who are white. And so that was really the other aspect of us using claims data because we were able to get access to such a large data set that was so diverse, we were able to almost immediately have better accuracy in terms of prediction for these populations that obviously have breasts too that are under the age of 35 and not Caucasian. Um, and, And one of those aspects is as a breast cancer survivor myself, when I was diagnosed in my early 20s, um, to your point, mammography is not great usually for younger women because they tend to have more dense breast tissue. So although we don't predict what modality would be better for you, and um, we we aren't you know using imaging to more accurately say whether or not there is a breast cancer diagnosis, part of our care plan is following the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines, which does recommendations um, for different screening modalities based off of your risk as well as your age. So to more specifically answer your question, we are more accurately able to predict um, women of all ethnicities and all ages. That's so important because as we know, for example, black women may get breast cancer at earlier ages and the outcomes are much worse. Right, exactly. And it's the same thing for younger women too. Um, You know, Women who are diagnosed with breast cancer under 50, 85% of them are diagnosed at late stages. And obviously that means that the, the outcome and the cost is way more significant. But we've there are studies that have shown that younger women diagnosed with later stage breast cancers, um, that they're, they're more severe and more difficult to treat. Right. And you reference your personal story. Would you mind sharing that with us? Because I think it's so important. Sure. So uh, in 2012, my mom found a lump and she was getting her annual mammograms. But it turns out, and this is the perfect time to be talking about this, it turns out that wasn't the right screening for her because she was in her early 40s and she had dense breast tissue. So she should have been getting breast MRIs. Um, which means that over the last couple of years when she was getting mammograms, the breast cancer was probably there, but the mammogram didn't pick it up. So when she was diagnosed, um, by the time 
we found out it was too late. And from diagnosis, she died eight months later. Mm. And I always say that my mom saved my life because I would not have become more aware of my breasts and my risk had I not experienced the loss of my mom and her going through breast cancer because only a few months after she passed, I found a lump in both of my breasts Mm. and I immediately moved to action to get my doctor to look at it. And it turned out that I also had to fight to get the necessary screening. I was told that I was too young. There's no way it was breast cancer. I was probably too emotional about losing my mom or um, that, you know, it's dense breast tissue. Young women have that. It'll go away. And basically fought for about a year to get all the necessary screening. And I chose to have what was supposed to be a preventative double mastectomy. And in surgery was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I was only 24. Wow. And you also, if I remember correctly, underwent genetic screening. Correct. And so I don't know if your mother did as well to find out if she had the the gene, but how does the genetic screening factor into the Gabby algorithm? Um, yes. So uh, my mom had an undiagnosed BRCA mutation okay. and I was able to get genetic testing and I too tested positive for the, the BRCA uh, gene. And what's crazy about that is that even with that diagnosis, I still had a hard time getting necessary screening. Um, but um, as part of Gabby, so um, we're not specifically for women who have BRCA mutations. And we're not saying by any means that any everyone should get genetic testing. But as part of your care plan, based off of your risks and the data that you provide, the data that... that um, we connect to your risk, genetic testing could be a component of your action plan. So we may recommend that you go get genetic testing. Right. You know, I shared with you that in my other interview with Dr. Karen Anderson, who's a medical oncologist and researcher, she talks a lot about screening. And Mm. and it's no longer binary, whether or not you have BRCA1 or not, because there's all sorts of other genes and things like that. Totally. Part of the challenge, though, is access to genetic counseling. And the other piece that was really interesting about what she said is that right now, there's so many people who either don't know their family history or Mm -hmm. they have smaller families. So finding family history is more difficult. So how do you feel about the importance of uh, genetic screening, plus the fact that it is getting much cheaper? Right, right. Um, A couple of things. So... Absolutely. So like limited family structure is what that's called when you have um, small family members. And Mm -hmm. if all these risk models that are out there being used today are mostly based off of family history, if you have a limited family structure, then you may be getting an inaccurate risk calculation because this risk model that's been created is mostly built off of um, family history. Uh, And then to get genetic testing, in, in order for, uh, and this may have changed, but at least to a, a lot of times in order to not have to pay out of pocket for genetic testing, insurance will cover it, but you have to meet specific criteria and that requires mm-hmm. family history and there's specific family history that it requires. 
And so um, if it's you catch 22, exactly right. And I remember in my in my former career, I was actually um, part of the the company that that discovered the BRCA genes. And um, during that position, it was it was not often, but frequent enough that, you know, there would be a patient who was adopted or right. didn't know their father's side of the family or perhaps um, was an immigrant and and all those factors. And they couldn't get genetic testing because they didn't know that information. So that's another reason why we built our model so that there are multiple factors that are included. So family history will always be one of the greatest um indicators of a future risk for breast cancer. But by looking at these large data sets, we were also able to identify other things. And if you have so many more of these other things, they compound and can become a greater indicator of risk than even family history, which allows us to more accurately predict the risk for people who don't know their family history. Can you give some examples about what some of those factors are? Sure. Um, breast conditions, um, reproductive. When you say breast conditions, like fibrocystic breast disease, that kind of thing, lumps and bumps, basically. Exactly. Lumps and bumps. If you've had any other prior screening before, um, like that's kind of what we mean when we talk about breast conditions, um, uh, reproductive and menstrual factors and Mm -hmm. conditions. So that could be endometriosis. That also includes things like how old were you when you started menstruating for the first time? Um, have you gone through menopause? So that's a, those are categories. Um, so reproductive, menstrual, uh, breast conditions, and the um, menopausal factors. So have you have you started menopause? Have you taken any hormonal therapy? Um, and then there are about ten other categories that we also found that had a impact on risk. Uh, but because of the time constraints that we had with this validation study, um, we, we kind of just earmarked that for the next study that we're going to do. But there are about 10 other factors that also can impact a woman's risk, less so than those four other categories I mentioned. But if those are compounded too, they can become as powerful. And some of those included anxiety and depression, autoimmune disorders, and so we're really excited to dig into that. Um, and it's really fascinating. And really, it just opens up the door for our ability to provide risk for all women. What also is very heartening, exciting, is that you're collecting lots of data. And as you said, mm-hmm. analyzing them so that it's meaningful data that we don't have. So kudos to you for doing that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that the validation studies were done on medical claims through insurance companies. And I believe that you are targeting employers as well as insurance companies as your potential customers so that their members or their employees can avail themselves of this service, which sounds terrific. But I would assume that there are also some privacy concerns. Can you speak to that? Sure. We, of course, are HIPAA compliant. And there are also certain other safeguards that we have to go through in order to get access to this data and in order to act, uh, interact with, you know, an insurance company's member or an, an employer's employee. Um, on the other side, a woman has to opt in once she gets Gabby and chooses, she wants to maybe investigate this and see what it is. She has to opt in to, to share that data. Um, and 
part of that disclosure on our end is, listen, we are not sharing this with your employer. We're not sharing this with your insurance company. This is between you and us. And this isn't going anywhere. Um, with my background in genetics, uh, data was something that I learned a lot about and the importance of um, right data, accurate data, and also keeping data secure. So um, as far as we're concerned at Gabby, it's your data and it's ours and it doesn't go anywhere else. Okay. So even if the employer is the customer or the insurance company is the customer, they don't see the data from this? Right. So they'll be, they give us access to the claims data, but once we, um, and, and so we, we have that information when a woman starts using Gabby and we've predicted her risk, we're not sharing that back with the employer. Okay. I think that's obviously very important. You talk about the reason that we're doing any of this is so that we can save lives and improve mm -hmm. outcomes. Mm -hmm. Do you have any data to prove that? Great question. And yes, uh, we want to prove that. We want to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and that obviously takes time and resources. So we are excited about um, some clinical studies that we will be conducting, some prospective studies. Uh, with some different health organizations, and we're always looking for more. Um, but those will be happening later this year and into 2023, as well as some um, pilots that we'll be conducting with some employers. And that's one of the things we'll be measuring is, is what are the outcomes? How does Gabby change the status quo? And we're also looking for more of those as well. Sure. Getting back to some of the risk factors and some of the suggestions that you make or recommendations, are you also looking at lifestyle factors? Yes. And how do you counsel women if you identify that they may be engaging in any kind of factors that increase their risk? Right now, it's from an education standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, if you share with us that you're eating red meat three times a day, for seven days a week, um, we'll say, hey, one of the things that's impacting your risk for breast cancer is your red meat intake. And, you know, if you were able to decrease that, to example, this could potentially decrease your risk by X amount. And so right now, it's just from an education standpoint, we hope to be able to offer more support eventually. But right now, it's just... Um, educating and awareness around what are the things that impact your risk and what can you do to perhaps change that. So we know that part of the challenge with women's health is that historically there has not been enough research. Mm -hmm. Have you identified any obstacles or gaps that you're finding? What we've seen is there's always more on white women and there's always specifically around breast health. It's always a lot more on women who are essentially 45, 50 plus. Right. Um, so again, I would, I would say always ethnicity and age. Um, and then if we go even further in that specific uh, socioeconomic and geographic locations as well. And from a policy standpoint, I would say another hindrance is, is a, a lot of, associated with what is covered and not covered by insurance for screening and the fighting that is required if you are a younger woman 
and have a concern in your in your breast, following guidelines and and even when clinicians chime in and are thinking about the cost that it's going to be to the patient, these screening procedures are not cheap. And if they're not covered by your insurance, then that creates a huge barrier. Um, and it, not to get too political, but the ability for it not to be an uphill battle for a woman to get screening if there's a concern, like if there's a founded concern. Um, sure. That's and what I would say. And then it goes back to data, right? Right. The challenge with those guidelines is that they're, quote, evidence-based. Mm-hmm. And and the challenge, I would assume, is also in younger women because the numbers are smaller. It's harder to prove the efficacy of the guidelines. Totally. Well, and also, if if what we're hearing is that either whether that's the ACS or USPSTF or NCCN, I'll tell you, start getting your mammogram at 40 or 45 or 50, or maybe first at 50. And then, you know, every three to five years, I mean, just for the average woman, that is incredibly confusing, not to mention the clinician, you know, they all will cite those different numbers. And if you don't even know when you're supposed to start getting mammography, and then you find a concern, say that you're younger, I mean, Basically, even even women who are 40, 45, or 50 may have a hard time getting their mammogram covered because what guidelines are being followed. And you talked also about, you said something that led me to believe that you may be starting with breast cancer, but perhaps expanding out to other cancers. Yes. Um, so we aim to be the early detection company. And... Um, we've created our risk model in a way that's generalizable so we can apply it to other preventable cancers. And there are many other cancers that affect women that can either be prevented or we know that when they're found early, the five-year survival rate is much, much higher. So those include colon cancer, uh, cervical cancer, endometrial cancer, and ovarian cancer. If someone's listening and they want to avail themselves of this app, is it available? We're currently not available and in the market. However, we are doing tons of beta testing. And so um, if a woman is interested, please go to our website. And what is that website? BeGabby.com. So B-E and then G-A-B-B-I.com to uh, sign up to be an early user tester. And then another way you can get Gabby is advocate to your employer and say you want this as a benefit. And is it available now to employers and insurers? Um, in um, uh, Q2 of this year, so in April, we will be um, doing a pilot with uh, one group and then um, another group in Q3 in the summer and another um, to kick off for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So it's okay. not widely available, mm-hmm. um, but, but it's you can start available. greasing, greasing the wheels. Exactly, <laughs> starting to talk about it. That's terrific. So before we leave, we always like to leave our listeners with something that they can actually take action on to help impact their health. What would be that one thing you might suggest to them? I would suggest breast self awareness and regular breast self awareness. And um, I think the best way to do that is to to learn how to perform your own self-breast exam and to conduct it regularly. 
um, ideally once a month. Get to know your breasts so that then you know when something's abnormal. Terrific. Well, Caitlin Christine, CEO of Gabby, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Missy. It was a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Caitlin Christine, a truly courageous woman who took what she learned from her own health challenges and developed an innovative company, Gabby, aimed at helping other women better understand their personal risk of breast cancer so they can take action to reduce that risk or find cancer earlier when it's easier to treat. I also encourage you to listen to my interview with Dr. Karen Anderson, a medical oncologist and researcher. We discuss specific actions you can take now to reduce your risk of breast cancer, as well as the latest in screening recommendations and new treatment options. I hope you'll take away at least one action item from these podcasts. Let us know what it is at beyondthepapergown.com or on any of our social media. Thank you for listening. I do hope you'll join us if you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe. For more information on this episode or for additional episodes, links, and comments, find us at beyondthepapergown.com or follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. This episode of Beyond the Paper Gown was produced by Patrick Shumbayati and Dr. Mitzi Krakow. Until next time, stay healthy and centered.